We are in Proverbs. If you've been with us through the fall, uh, this book, right towards the middle of the Bible, that is a collection of, as the name kind of gives it away, Proverbs. These short, kind of even pithy statements that are caused for us to reflect on really the good life and what it means to live a life of influence and abundance and fruitfulness. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. And today we're halfway through the series that we've been calling Wisdom's Way, Finding the Good Life in the Book of Proverbs. Now, being at the halfway point, looking back over the past two months, we were in the first nine chapters of the book, kind of the prologue. And in the prologue of the book, we found the the life, the way to the good life as being this decision between one of two paths, one of two ways of living, one with uh, wisdom, uh, lady wisdom, this personification of God's wisdom, marrying and living with her, and the other as the, um, the beautiful and seductive but ultimately destructive uh, lady folly of, of foolishness. And each of us in our lives have that, that decision before us. And so over the past nine chapters, the past eight weeks, we've been building up to that call, that need to marry, to desire, to live after wisdom. And uh, now today, we move to the back half of the book, uh, chapters 10 through 30, where now every single aspect of life is going to be brought under the filter of wisdom. So it's going to bring all of these different topics and ask, what does it mean for our, our words, like how we talk to people to be seen through the framework of this, of this wisdom? What about um, our relationship to our work and our career path? What about our wealth? Uh, what about our relationship to alcohol is actually what we're going to be doing in two weeks. Um, we're going to take every little part of life because Proverbs does this. So it's 915 Proverbs. And we're going to bring all of those kind of under the microscope of wisdom, asking what is, what is wisdom with my money? What is wisdom when I punch in, or nobody really punches in, maybe some of you do, but when I, when I show up for work, what is the way of wisdom? What is the way to the good life and my relationship to these things? My words, my work, uh, my wealth, uh, my wine, or, you know, alcohol. Uh, next week actually is going to be our birthday service, as some of you know. Uh, we're going to be celebrating our birthday, and we're actually going to be pulling together a handful of Proverbs that actually speak to what it is that we as the pastors of Collective believe we, we really need to lean into as not just individuals, but as a community, to be a wise uh, community, to build wisdom's house, as we saw last week. And so there's a lot more topics that we could do. Um, there's 915 Proverbs, right? We could go on forever. Um, and so we've, we've picked out a handful that uh, in conversation with the pastors, we've gone, okay, these are the main ones for us right now. I will say like two big ones that I, I kept fighting with whether or not we would do a week on, one of them being justice and one of them being parenting. Um, that, we, that, we, that wisdom talks a lot about that we're not gonna be hitting on over the next few weeks. This is not because we don't wanna talk about them. This is because we have within the past year. So if you wanna know about wisdom and justice, Pastor Isaac preached a little over a year ago in our Story of Justice series, specifically on Proverbs, on the wisdom books and justice. And then for parenting, um, we did a, a book club uh, last winter um, specifically on parenting. And so if that's, if you're the, like, I want wisdom on, on being a mom and being a dad, Come and talk to me afterwards or on justice or any topic that maybe we don't get to. And uh, we, we still want to be a resource as we're making our way through. But today, as we get started in the back half, today we're going to be looking at the chief virtue of wisdom. The foundation, the trellis for a life of wisdom that everything is built up from. And it is self-control. Self-control. Now, I, I picked this topic, one, selfishly. <laughs> 
Because me, you know, being uh, diagnosed with ADHD in elementary school, like, I, I, I was like, I want to figure out how wisdom works because I, I want to figure out not just how wisdom, but self-control works. What does it mean to be a self-controlled person? And not just intellectually, but like, how do I practically live this out? I pick this selfishly for myself. But also in being a pastor and talking to so many of you, knowing that self-control is a topic that uh, has brought up, it's been a topic of interest for some of you, confusion for others, or just outright resignation, where you're like, self-control, that is a fool's errand, and so I'm just going to kind of do my best and kind of just kind of see what happens here. But today, we're going to bring a little bit of self-control, showing not just what Proverbs says, what Scripture says about self-control, but bringing kind of the past couple of weeks and months of me studying self-control for myself, of psychology and science. We're going to Bible nerd out, but also kind of get into some new territory in the way that we think about self-control today. So with all that being said, why don't we pray, and then let's begin to get into what the Bible is speaking to us. Father, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to gather God, to study uh, your scripture. Um, God, for those of us that are uh, your, your uh, people, God, we identify, we call ourselves part of this church. Uh, God, we're grateful that we're able to be here. Uh, God, for those of us that this is their first Sunday to collective or first Sunday in any church, uh, God, would you uh, help all of us that we would all just come with curiosity to the scriptures to see what might be uh, the invitation before us. Uh, give us ears to hear and, and a mind of curiosity and, and a heart that feels your word being spoken to us. God, as the early church leader James prayed, God, if any of us lack wisdom, that if we pray and we ask you, you will provide it for us. And so in the midst of our lack of wisdom with the idea of self-control, God, today would you help us? Help us to be more self-controlled. Help us to not just be more self-controlled, but to understand how it works. Be with us, we pray. Amen. So let's dive in a little bit more to that question I started with. Why self-control? Well, in the book of Proverbs, we find repeatedly that the self-control is wisdom's way to greatness. I, I can't put it any smaller or lower than that. Self-control is wisdom's way to greatness. But the absence of self-control is the vulnerability. It is the source of weakness for most of us. In that desire to live either a foolish or a wise life, for those of us that want to live with wisdom, you, 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 you need self-control. If you don't have self-control, you are going to be as, as exposed as, I made a, a reference to a Marvel movie last night. This is not my notes, but if any of you grew up playing video games, do any of you remember like the, the easy bosses that had like the, the weak points? Like, you know, the eyes that are red or whatever, like they open up their hands and there's like, the, you know, you hit those and basically you just knock the thing out in five minutes. That's, that's what the lack of self-control is, is it's, it's you giving the weak points to foolishness in your life. It makes, it's easy pickings is what the book of Proverbs says. It's the way to greatness, but it's also, its absence is our source of weakness. To show that this isn't just Ryan here, Proverbs 16, verse 32, you'll see behind me today, says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, that is, who has self-control, is greater than he who takes a city. Now, being mighty and taking a city is a little maybe foreign to us today, but in the ancient world, it was the mighty, those who took cities that were the greatest. That when you thought through who are the greatest people on the scene, it is the mighty warriors who could, you know, take down a city. You know, you think of gladiator movies. Those were the greatest. That was the personification of all of the might and strength of humanity was in those who could take down a city. This was the most impressive feat of its day. If we wanted to translate Proverbs 16, 32 into the modern world, 
You know, we could talk about, you know, whoever is slow to anger is uh, better than the employee of SpaceX. And he who rules his spirit has self-control is better than those who can program a rocket to not just take off, but reland itself, right? For the past few years, we've been watching on, at least me, on Twitter, watching as they've been slowly trying to figure out how to get these rockets to like land themselves. And over the years, it's been kind of funny to watch them like just implode as soon as they land. But then over the past few years, it's getting a little bit, you know, better and better. And now it's, it's, it's commonplace to see, oh, there's a, a rocket landing itself. But it's this impressive feat of humanity. Like that is what it means to be, like if, if humans can do that, what can't we do? Not even Mars is safe from us. And, and so Proverbs is saying here, you know, you, we have to do a little work there to get from an ancient to a modern understanding. How much greater is the person who can not just take a city, but can restrain their spirit? Someone who can not just control a rocket, but can control themselves. Someone who's able to slow their anger, rule their spirit. That's the real marvel of humanity. That's the really great person, is the person who is able to, in the moment, when they want to do one thing, restrain and control themselves to do what is right, to do what is wise, that's greatness, as cool as rockets are. And, and so we see that first and foremost, wisdom, its way to greatness is found in self-control, but also its absence is found, uh, it, it is our vulnerability, our weakness. Uh, Proverbs 25, 28 actually flips the script, playing around with, with the city being taken language here. And it says the man, uh, just the word for human, the human, the person without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Once again, the ancient world, a city's walls were its defense, its protection, its security. Without that, the whole city, everyone who lived within is left vulnerable to any gang of marauding bandits or any army that would come in. The person without self-control, it is the exposed weak points of the final boss. Your life is easy pickings for foolishness, for being deceived, for being misled. It's the chief virtue. Self-control is what protects you from danger. And when you put both of these together, both the greatness and the weakness when, it, when it's not with us, is that self-control is, is like, I'm, like I keep saying, getting it into our brains here. Self-control is the way to greatness. If you have it, Proverbs 16 would say, what can stop you? If you have self-control, what can get in your way? But the reverse is also true. If you don't have self-control, what can save you? You're constantly going to be spending your life getting misled by this or that. Wisdom's chief virtue is self-control. It is the foundation that it's built up from. It is the trellis that the life of wisdom, the good life of abundance and fruitfulness grows from. And so if with it, if we have self-control, we can get building. But without it, we're gonna be like my four-year-old sitting on the beach, trying to make sandcastles just a little bit too close to the waves. And she gets working and everything's building up and then just, you know, give it time and the waves, every now and then, there comes the one that knocks everything down. And, oh, what did I do? Right? She's vulnerable. If we are trying to build a life, a good life of wisdom, if we don't have self-control, our endeavors towards living a life of wisdom in our words, our work, our wealth, our ways, our relationships, or whatever it might be, if we don't have self-control, we're gonna be building sandcastles. This is exactly what we see when the Apostle Paul, this early leader in the Christian church, talks about the fruit of the Spirit, those visible virtues of people whose God's Spirit is dwelling within and working, people who are Jesus' people, the fruit of the Spirit, he says they are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
For many times, Christians throughout history have looked at how the virtues of the Christian life begin in love but are crowned in self-control. You cannot have love without self-control. You cannot have peace and patience and kindness and goodness without self-control. But what exactly is self-control, ruling our spirit? This is where we get some helpful insight from not just the book of Proverbs, but also from science. Stanford psychologist Kenny McGonigal, you're going to hear from her more in a little bit. She defines self-control as the ability to do what you need to do, even when part of you doesn't want to. The ability to do what, is, what you need to do, what is right, what is wise, even when there's a part of you or even a most of you that doesn't in fact want to do that. And though the book of Proverbs never gives us a really simple definition for what uh, self-control is, we see that same, just like what uh, Dr. McGonigal says, represented throughout the book. You'll see Proverbs 14 and 29 behind me. Proverbs 14, 29 says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, great wisdom, but he who is a hasty temper exalts folly. Notice the self-control is the ability to, in the moment when you want to, or maybe you need, feel like you need to get angry, the ability to slow that anger. It doesn't mean that it goes away, but you slow it down. There's a patience in the midst of your anger. And then 29, a fool who gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. More than just anger here, this is the ability to control your emotions, your thoughts, your spirit, your desires. Those inward compulsives within you that you are able to restrain. It's not that they go away, but you're able to restrain them. You're not being carried around by them. You're not dragged by, uh, on the leash by these. Proverbs 17, 27, and 10, 19. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. No, the restrain, it's the same root word for self-control in the Hebrew that, that Proverbs is written in. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, but he who has a cool spirit is a man, a person of understanding. Notice here, the, the self-control is the ability to restrain the quality of your words, the things that you say. 17 and then 10, 19, who, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever, again, restrains his lips is prudent. So we have not just a self-control over what I say in verse 10, but in verse, uh, or in verse 17, but in verse 10, how much I say. Self-control, we were, it was the ability to control my words that I slow down enough, I have enough control over myself that I'm not um, being led around by my mouth. But how I say it, how much I say it, why I say it, when I say it. I have an ability to control and hold these things ultimately for what's wise, what's the right thing to do, even in those moments when I don't want to. Again, in verse 25, probably two of my favorite, 25, 16 says, if you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit. Ryan's translation would be, if you have found Oatly's strawberry ice cream, Eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill and you just pass out on the couch and, and you, know, you, look, you look awful. Notice self-control here is actually talking about a control of our, our, our stomachs, our, our, our food. That being able to identify that, oh, I, I'm not going to just pig out on any honey sweet thing that I find, but I have an ability to restrain my desires to what is enough for me and what I need to eat right now. And then 25, 27, it continues and picks up that same metaphor with the honey. It says, it isn't good to eat much honey and nor is it glorious to seek one's glory. That in the same way, the ability to curb our appetite and to be able to say no to our desires to eat what is not just healthy in quality, but in quantity is also, the, it's a parallel for the ability to say no to ambition and desire and, and prideful drive. 
there's a, it's a similar craving. It's a gut craving of I want to be seen and known and popular. And, you know, and, and Proverbs says the ability to set that aside, to restrain and hold that wisely. This is all self-control. And all of these, just like we saw with Dr. McGonagall, wisdom, self-control is being able to do what we need to with our anger, our emotions, our words, with food, with our pride, etc. Even when we don't want to, even when the honey looks good, even when using a curt response to someone would feel just so right, even when someone cuts you off and you just feel that one particular finger that just needs to be shown in the right direction of that person. Wisdom is that ability to in that moment go, man, there's a part of me that wants to do that. And yet I am gonna be allowing myself to be led not by that part of me, but by this part of me, the the part of me that's appealing to wisdom, to what's right to who I want to be. And so in order to talk about these, a little more psychology here now that we've done some Bible, all of this, all of those decisions in that moment, saying no to the honey, saying no to the ambition, the anger or the words are tied up in our willpower. The strength of your mind to say yes or no to something. But psychology has shown us that willpower is not some superfluous out there or in here kind of thing that we don't know much about. It's a muscle in your brain like any other. Uh, Jeffrey Kluger, you'll see it behind me. He's editor at large at Time Magazine. He says this, the best way to think of willpower is not some shapeless behavioral trait, but as a muscle, a muscle in your, your mind, one that can atrophy or grow stronger depending on how much it's used. Your willpower, your ability to say yes and no is a muscle that can atrophy, it can weaken, or it can strengthen depending on how it's used. And because willpower and with it self-control as the activity of that is a muscle. So like any muscle, it gets tired. You and I, we use our willpower from the moment we wake up to the moment that we go to sleep. We are using that, that battery, that muscle of willpower with every single decision that we face. And think about how many you go through on the way. Even before your feet hit the floor, you are already using your willpower. Do I hit the snooze button as soon as your feet? Do I go for the run? Do I uh, read the Bible today? Do I pray? What do I eat for breakfast? What do I, uh, did I say, what do I eat for breakfast? What do I wear today? So all throughout the day, you've got the phone in front of you. Do I answer that text now or do I answer it later? You open up, maybe I'll just listen to some music and ignore the text message. And you have Apple Music, so you have, what is it? I wrote it down, 100 million options, 50 million uh, options of songs that you have to like, you open up your phone and you're faced with all this huge tap of willpower. It's not like this album or this album. It's 50 million like that you have to pick between. And then you get home and you have to pick, not just am I going to watch what show, but what streaming service now? I'm gonna watch Hulu or Netflix or Amazon Prime or you know, whatever's on HBO Max. And then once I get in there, there's countless options within. All of it is tapping our willpower. You show up at work, every decision, every email, everything that you're going to eat, all throughout the day, that battery is being depleted and used. And then let alone, on top of that, the temptations to do foolish things in the midst of all of them. At some point in our day, our willpower gets tapped. It hits low and self-control now is vulnerable. This is what psychologists refer to as ego depletion. Your ego, yourself, you are depleted and you are at your absolute lowest and your self-control is gone. This happens every single day from five to seven o'clock in the Smith home. I go to work and Aaron, Aaron works as, as well, even outside the home. And so we're both working and uh, managing kids. And we've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old. And it's just, you know, it's insane. It's insane. And five o'clock, we sit down at the dinner table, or 5.30, 6.00, we sit down at the dinner table. And 
Aaron and I, it's, we, we literally are, we, we don't have any more energy to do anything. We're just there. I mean, like, we had Kyle and Courtney Young over for dinner um, this past week. And after they left, Aaron was just like, I think they would have had a better conversation with a cadaver. Like, because we're just like there. And so even when we don't have people over, we're just there. And so here's the thing. Self-control is gone. And so we end up eating far more than we want to. We're just like, yeah, we're just going to like just eat because we just don't want to get up, right? Or Emma's like, dessert. And we're like, yeah, I guess. And so it's just like the ice cream. And then we're giving, and we know that what's coming in the minutes ahead is more willpower to get these kids ready for bed, to shower, shower, to get them in the bathtub, to get them, we got books read, diapers changed, we got to get, okay, what's ready for tomorrow? There's dishes to be done. And literally we just, the amount, we don't, we don't have the energy to do that. And even at the table, like Arlo's just there like banging stuff and Emma's running around the house on her scooter and we're just, we're, why? We, our ego is, we are completely depleted. The self-control, the ability to muster the strength to get up and keep going is, is gone. And this is, this, so some of you, this is, you know, this is how your life goes. Some of you don't have, you have enough decisions that maybe there's seasons when you feel this. Others of you, your job at work right now, you're like, I'm having a great day. And you walk in the door to work or you get onto Zoom or whatever. And, uh, and the ego's go, you're gone. You're immediately, like the amount of just like stress and conflict of work is, it's completely out the window. Here's the whole thing that was so helpful for me in identifying is that willpower is not a matter. Self-control is not a matter of mustering up. It's a muscle. And if I'm using it in so many ways, everything from saying no to the candy bar to saying no to illicit sex, to drugs or whatever, any little thing, I am pulling from that same muscle. And, and so I need to think differently about how I relate to my self-control. Because this thing is depleted, not just by each day's decisions, but this was fascinating. Your willpower, and this is through science and tests, there are three big things that will do detrimental damage to your willpower, your ability to say no. It is sleep, diet, and conflict. Low amount of sleep, uh, particular diet uh, with, um, what was it, high saturated, I wrote it down, Um, saturated fats, it's our blood glucose levels drop um, when we're using our willpower. And so, um, they actually have done tests that you make worse decisions after eating refined grains and processed, uh, sugar, yeah, refined sugar and processed grains. It's, it's fascinating. Your willpower gets tapped even more by sleep, diet, and conflict. This is why we're prone to desire and do things we'll later regret when we are tired, when we are stressed, or when we're hungry. We have a word for it, hangry. This is what that is. Your willpower is tapped, and so now you're being mean. You don't have self-control anymore. And so there was that one sociologist and professor who said, if I wanted to destroy your self-control, I could do it in, in less than 24 hours. He said, first, I would make sure you only got three hours of sleep. Then I would make sure you were late to work and you got in a fight with your wife and you had McDonald's for breakfast. He said, I, by the afternoon, could get you to do something that the day before you never would have done. So here's the thing. We are going through lots of decisions and lots of conflict and, and no wonder we have, we have struggled with willpower. No wonder 2020, like all of us have like some season and moment in 2020 that we did something that we infinitely regret. They were like, oh my gosh, that was the low point in 2020 when I just hit that point. I said something to my roommate or my spouse or my kids. I did that, I did that. And I was like, oh my God, I'm never gonna. What would happen? A year of lack of sleep, of conflict, right? A lack of like vitamin D, like we're all just stuffed up inside. And so no wonder our willpower was tapped. We were living with low willpower through all of 2020. 
And so self-control, this is what's so helpful, is tied up in willpower, and willpower is a limited resource. God, you are not a little soul that's driving around a little body like from Men in Black. You are a created being, and God created the processes of your willpower and your body to work in harmony with his spirit, not as two opposite things. The goal is not you getting beyond your body and beyond these processes of your mind, but seeing what does it look like to live as a person of Jesus, as a good creation, utilizing the gift of my willpower. That This is a muscle that God has given me, just like my arms or my legs or my toes. I don't know how toes are a gift, but... And so all of this is, if it's a limited resource, then this is why battling temptation, whether some sort of sin or Ben and Jerry's, is actually a bad idea. It's easy to think that if we fend off temptation or something that's alluring or or calling to us, we can do it again. But what we find within the science is our willpower is actually weaker the second, the third, the fourth time around. It chips away at our ability to say no. Perhaps this is why all the language dealing with folly in chapters one through nine was never face foolishness, but flee and run from it. Because that's that's a losing battle. You can stand your ground one time, two, but it's a losing battle at the end of the day. You and I are far weaker and more vulnerable in our self-control than I think we like to believe. We actually are, are pretty weak in this. So here to move to the next part. How do we grow in self-control, right? And this is the one we all want. We all acknowledge, yeah, Ryan, we stink. We don't have self-control. We eat a whole thing, like one of those big buckets of red vines, and then we get sick. We're all here. Nope, just me. Cool, okay. But how do I grow if it's, uh, 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 how do I grow self-control? How do I grow my willpower? How can I strengthen that muscle and with it my self-control? Well, a couple of, of uh, notes that we can get here is, is first and foremost with resistance, like with any muscle. Start doing hard things. Start, there's some challenge, I know in all of our houses, there's that one challenging book that we need to read, whether fiction or nonfiction, that's just sat there. For me, it's like I was gonna do it before the movie came out. I was gonna read Dune and I kept putting it off and the movie comes out and now it's too late. Like I'm not, I don't even care anymore now. Read that challenging book. Maybe that's just going for a run. Maybe that's you making a habit of one day, every day doing one hard thing. It takes willpower to grow willpower because it's a muscle. You got to work it out. Also, avoid willpower wasters. These have been shown to be frequent use of social media, multitasking, trying to find ways to simplify the decisions that you make each day. So this is, you know, Steve Jobs with the the black turtleneck and the nasty jeans of like his whole life. That was what he wore. It's a simplified closet for the sake of not just because he liked turtlenecks or he wanted to stand alone. His whole driving force was, I want to limit and save as many decisions, as much willpower as I can. Maybe he was onto something. There's a little bit maybe, you know, managing staff and stuff like that. He probably could have put more attention to. Um, But he had the closet thing down. But this is also diet, like, and what we think that with our, our diet, or even I have a friend who does this with music, because he's like, I love Apple Music, it's incredible, Spotify, whatever you have, to have access to all this music, but I just know every time I open that app, it's just like, pew, I'm just like scrolling, what do I want to listen to? So what he does at the beginning of every single week is he picks the album that's going to be his album, when he opens his phone, that's all he listens to. And he gets to like actually enjoy like whole albums, like how music was made to be like experienced, um, and not just in TikToks. Um, but, uh, but that's the whole, the whole point is it's avoiding willpower wasters. Like just going, yeah, I, I could spend that time, but I want to save that decision-making for the things that actually matter, right? I want to save that willpower for those. Like we talked about getting good sleep, eating well, 
I, I talked about this moment, expending willpower causes your blood glucose levels to drop. Whether, and I don't even mean if it's like, you know, expending willpower in exercise. Literally, you sitting in a chair, whether or not I answer that email, uses blood glucose. So having a healthy diet, you're actually enabling yourself at some level to have this. And here, this is Ryan right now, is like, I am awful at this. Like, Panda Express is a large marker of like my diet pyramid in my life. I need work on this. So what I'm saying is, is there's something to be said here. There's a self-control, an invitation that our, again, our, our bodies are a gift and that when we steward them well, it actually leads to us to being able to steward other areas of our life well with self-control. And then another way that we can grow in our self-control is with community. Study after study shows that willpower grows when it's shared. This is why nobody does escape rooms alone. Not just because I'd be sad, but like... <laughs> But the whole point is, if you throw somebody in one of those, if they're by themselves, like maybe I would be there like 10 minutes by myself. I'm like, I'm done. But when you're doing that as a group, you actually have a larger reserve of willpower. You share, you literally share the willpower with the people that you do that, you do that with. This is part of Lorenzo for our discipleship groups of living within a community is actually by holding one another in uh, into this community, we're giving one another the gift of our willpower. When one another is weak, we're able to be strong for each other, to encourage, to bear burdens. And what happens there is we're sharing our willpower so that we can walk in the way of Jesus. Even when guys like me are so exhausted and we feel like we don't have it, I've got the guys in my DG who are able to like encourage me in the midst of that. And I'm able to encourage them when they're in those seasons. But here's the thing. These are great, but this was fascinating to me. Kelly McGonigal said, well, she's back, hi. Uh, She said, there is actually a secret for greater self-control. Beyond all these, there's one big secret. She says, the science points to one thing, the power of paying attention. The power of paying attention. Or as Proverbs 14, 8 puts it, the wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Wisdom, Kelly and Proverbs would agree here. Dr. McGonigal would agree that wisdom is to discern, to pay attention to your way to slow down and ask, what is the way of my life? Or I love this, as one translation of Proverbs puts it, the wisdom, uh, what is it? The wise pay attention to their habits. They translate your way as as habits because they say your way of life, the best way to talk about that is, is the habits, those unconscious ways that you carry yourself out. That's the way that you're living. The wise pay attention to their habits because as Duke University found, more than 40% of the actions that you make each day come from habits rather than decision. 40%, nearly half of everything that you do on a daily basis happens without conscious thought. It just happens, nearly half. And so Proverbs is saying the folly of fools is they are self-deceived about that 40% about what their habits are bringing. As we saw back in chapter six, you know, the fool says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and then calamity comes because they've been, you know, they've been lazy. They've been, they had a habit of laziness and now it's caught them up. The folly of fools is they're deceived in that 40% that that's actually leading them into foolishness. They don't see it. The reversal is the wisdom of the prudent is they pay attention to, they are discerning of, and they try to remake their habits. Because again, as science and the Bible walk hand in hand here, because this is what's fascinating. Willpower reserves, they do run dry. And though you can try to build your muscles through resistance, avoiding willpower wasters, sleeping well, eating well, and doing this in community, you still only have so much. 
You only have so much willpower. What's incredible is that habits have been shown that because of the fact that when a habit becomes an unconscious process, when we work something into a habit where we're no longer making decisions about doing that thing, it's just kind of part of what we do, it doesn't tap our willpower at all. So when something, when good becomes a habit, you're no longer having to play the game of like all the decisions of whether or not I will do this thing or that thing. We're able to do the right thing, the wise thing, without the cost of willpower. As N.T. Wright put it, virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices become second nature. And so the person who's wise is what Proverbs is saying here is though who pay attention to the habit loop is what uh, it's been identified as. That at the center of every habit loop, you have your craving and you have a cue, you have a response and a reward. This is the big circle, the orbit of all of your habits. Everything that you do, every, every, when you wake up and you go to brush your teeth, that's a habit. That is a craving of getting ready to get started for the day, not being embarrassed by bad breath. And so what comes on? The cue is me walking by the bathroom. The response is brushing my teeth. And the reward is minty fresh, right? But this also plays out with like the, the, the TikTok thing, right? The craving is I am bored. <laughs> and the cue is I, I have a phone. And more and more we see that's using notifications to pull me into its app that aren't actually going anywhere. They just want to get me back into the app. And so the cue happens and what's the response? The, resp- or the, uh, the response is I sit there and, you know, I go through the reels. I go through the TikTok. I go through the scroll. And the reward is I don't have to feel so bored, right? But the thing is with those bad habits in our lives, whatever it may be, there is always the cost of life of wisdom, a life of abundance and fruitfulness and presence. And wisdom, prudence goes, what are those habits at work? What is that cue, response, reward, and what's the craving? And what would it look like for me to bring that craving, uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves, into the knowledge of God and allow God to speak to that, that craving that I have and give me the proper answer for that? And then to then rework a cue, a response, and a reward that moves me in the direction of who God's inviting me to be. Because what's the problem with so much of our habit focus is we try to discount the whole thing and we go, that's bad. You are a really cool creature that God made with cravings that are always motivated by the desires of our heart that God has given us. And so the question is, what's the craving that I can affirm and not get caught up in the cue and the response and the rewards that may be foolish? And how do I redeem that craving and rework it with a new cue, response, and reward? Does that make sense? At least a little bit. Okay. We're going to tease this out a little bit more in the weeks to come. But here's the thing. That habit system, when you got that going, you then are able to do the right thing to do the wise thing without any expense to your willpower. But forming that new habit is a tremendous draw on your willpower over the 66 days that it normally takes for a habit to be made. This is why most recommend a psychologist one habit at a time, one focus at a time, baby steps at that. Or as Paul says, one degree of glory to the next. One little degree of of, of right, wise statements being made. The problem is, is that when we look at our lives, we get so overwhelmed by all of our foolish mistakes. And we, this is why, you know, 80% of New Year's resolutions fail. Is we just like look over like 2020, uh, you know, 2021 this year. And I'm like, there's all of the dumb stuff that I did. And so this year, and we just, we, we literally have a laundry list of ways that we're going to change. And then by February, 80% of us are back on the couch watching Ted Lasso. And, you know, we're putting down, you know, our Oatly strawberry ice cream. Not from experience. 
this is what happens. And it's not for lack of desire. It's not that we were just writing resolutions because we're like, you know, I guess everybody does it. We genuinely wanted to be one of those people. But our willpower gets expended in trying to lean into that stuff. And so, of course, we're exhausted. And we're never able to make it. The 20% who do usually focus on one to two things at a time. And they specifically are focused not on get more healthy, but on a habit of I'm going to, to walk around the neighborhood every day. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for a run. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And so as we go through the rest of our series, what we're going to be doing is I'm going to be giving potential habits with each of these topics. So when it comes to our words, when it comes to our work, when it comes to wine, when it comes to all of those things, giving the portrayal of what wisdom invites us into, but not just saying, okay, now go do that, giving us habits of reworking those things. Not for the sake that every single week you're going to put those into place, but we've got some next at bat. We've got a batting lineup to bring those habits in as we feel led. So there's the habits. This is the way to actually develop a self-control where we're able to say yes to the things that we want to. And it's not by tight-fisted, like every single time we come into contact, if you try to live that way, you will be exhausted. You will be vulnerable to foolishness. You won't have self-control. You will be a city without walls. But here's what's fascinating. Charles Duhigg, in like the book on habits, The Power of Habit, he describes in his book the power and work of what he calls keystone habits. These are habits which unintentionally carry over into other aspects of people's lives. As they, as they start to lean into these things, there's a domino effect, these keystone habits. So some habits that he's shown to have this kind of domino effect of exercise, making your bed in the morning, keeping a food journal, a scheduled routine, family meals on a weekly basis have shown to have so much implications on self-control and attention and presence, not just for parents, but for kids at an alarming rate, right? But here's the thing. As great as those are, and to encourage us in those, what's fascinating is the church community, the global historical church over the past 2,000 years, the people of Jesus, we have had our own keystone habits in prayer, Bible, and weekly worship. Now, some of you, I know it, are rolling your eyes because like, here we go. Ryan's talking about these three things again. I talk about these regularly because these, this, is, this is how important they are. If you don't have these, your walk with Jesus is always going to be you tight-knuckling, trying to follow him. These habits are the keystones which domino into the trellis, the foundation of self-control. So instead of giving Bible verses like I normally do, I want to continue in this science psychology and show you how I'm not making anything up when we talk about prayer, Bible, and weekly worship as those keystone habits. The first is prayer. Prayer is that practice of the Christian of taking time in and even out of our day to talk to God to bring exactly what we're experiencing and our emotions, what we're feeling, what we're afraid of, and speaking it and bringing it to him in prayer. This can be confessing sin. This can be asking for healing or asking for his provision in some way. This can be simply sitting and just enjoying his presence of kind of meditating on who he is in silence. This can happen on personal level of just me in my room. This happens in our pre-service prayer on a weekly basis, in our response time in our gatherings here in just a little bit, in our prayer nights that are coming tonight. These are, this is a keystone habit, is regularly pausing in the midst of our day and like uh, Kelly McGonigal says, paying attention through the practice of prayer. Now, here's what's fascinating. Psychology, I keep saying, here's what's fascinating. I was geeking out over this for a month, so all of it's fascinating. So you're gonna keep hearing it, I'm sorry. But psychology today, here's what they did. They did a whole test of comparing people that pray on a regular basis, and that was outlined by at least three to five times a week, to people who don't pray. And it was like zero to one times a week. And what they found is people that pray, it made them nicer, it made them more forgiving, 
It made them more trusting. It offset the negative effects of health and it boosts their self-control. It's a keystone habit. Neuroscientists, even more, they found that prayer dominoes into having a greater attention span, better focus, stress management, impulse control. Like what is self-control but impulse control? And self-awareness. And this is, it's incredible, I'm sorry. There's a 2014 study where they did two groups in studying their willpower. They had one group that prayed and the other that didn't. Those who were part of the non-praying test group, they had them do all these tests and they found, you know, their willpower went down at the normal rate. It was depleted and came down. They did poorly on the test. They found with their praying subjects, when they brought them in and tested them, not only were they better, they had absolutely no loss of willpower. That's me, it's fascinating. That muscle that gets tired, there's something when we open ourselves up to God and pray that it, it, re, it revives the muscle in an entirely new way. I think Jesus was maybe onto something when he said in Matthew 26, pray that you may not fall into temptation. It doesn't need to be long, but that simple prayer, that doesn't need to be, you know, that I'm like, in order to get my willpower back, I'm gonna go for 30 minutes and like, you know, speaking in tongues and, you know, seven, whatever. A simple prayer. The story brings me, I, I, Ray Ortland is a, a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, he tells this story about his father, who was a pastor that has, um, I, I think of it on a regular basis. He said, my mom told me once that dad had this practice as he came home at the end of each day. He worked hard throughout the day pastoring our church and he regularly came home tired. And so as he walked up the back steps, before he reached out to open the back door, he would lift up a simple prayer. Lord, I need some extra energy right now. And God answered that prayer. I, as a child, never once saw my dad walk in with no positive emotion to give. Instead, he'd walk over to my mom, kiss her with this huge kiss, and turn to me and say, come on, Skip, let's wrestle. And we'd go out into the front room and wrestle on the floor and tickle and laugh and have a blast. Then he concludes, the moment-by-moment reality of prayer in my dad gave him energy to love his family when it wasn't easy. There you have in Ray Ortland and his father, this example of someone who spent all day giving willpower to his work and to the ministry, and just in that simple habit, do you notice it's a habit? When he reached out to touch the back door, the prayer, God, I need energy right now. And then he opened the door and God met him in that. That prayer revives our willpower in some way when we connect ourselves to the power of God at work within us. The second keystone is not just prayer, but Bible. As you guys heard Paul, uh, Paul, I called Lorenzo Paul. I think really highly of you, dude. It's like the apostle. Um, as you guys heard Lorenzo talk about, um, here at Collective, what our engagement in Scripture looks like is a three-part integrated Bible study process of you meditating on Scripture by yourself alone, joining us here on Sunday to hear that same passage proclaimed in community, and then meeting in application in our meeting for application in our discipleship groups of discussing, okay, what did we see in our meditation? What did we hear in the proclamation? And then how now do we walk this out? This is part of that integrated Bible study process of how we do this. And even more than that, alongside that uh, process, in our time in Proverbs, we've been recommending everyone to read a chapter of Proverbs a day. There's 31 Proverbs chapters. And so we've been recommending everybody read one chapter a day. And here's what's great. Today's the 10th. We're right at the end of the prologue. So you just jump right in today and read chapter 10, tomorrow the 11th, the 12th, and just take time. I'm doing this with my discipleship group where we'll try to, as we read that, just kind of make note of one that stuck out to us, one verse, and we just kind of text you know, that to each other. Hey, this is the one, and specifically this is why, what we're chewing on. The whole point is meditating on scripture, hearing it proclaimed within community, and then actually applying it in our lives. Again, Lorenzo mentioned this, but 
Greg Hawkins and Callie Parkinson did this landmark study of over 250,000 Christians in 1,000 churches. So that's like no small, this isn't just like them asking a couple of people, like, what do you guys think? Huge test. And here's their conclusion. Uh, and I quote, nothing has greater impact on spiritual growth than reflection on scripture. If churches could do one thing, as one thing to help people at all levels to spiritually grow in their relationship with Christ, their choice is clear. They would encourage and equip their people to read their Bible specifically to reflect on scripture for meaning in their lives, Bible engagement is the single most spiritually catalytic activity a person can engage in. And we, we think it's like, it's, it's, there's some special secret sauce for, minute, like for how to do ministry, how to, for us to grow in our relationship with God. 250,000 Christians, read your Bible <laughs> and, and look for it, not just into what is this speaking, what is God speaking into my life right now? And to do that within the community. And then finally, not just prayer, but Bible, but also weekly worship, or this right now, hi, weekly gathering of the church, right now, right here, gathering in worship to study and receive the scriptures and to come to the table to receive Jesus. A Harvard 2016 study found that women who attended religious services frequently were one third less likely to die over a 21 year period. So ladies, you guys wanna live? <laughs> here you go. The Harvard uh, group doing this study, they concluded that service attendance may be a powerful and underappreciated health resource. USA Today, not to be outdone, summarized their study with, religion may be a miracle drug. Other studies have shown that regular service attendance in a church community boosts your immune system, it decreases your blood pressure, blood pressure, it lowers your cholesterol, you are less prone to mental illness, you have higher levels of happiness and better sex lives. Now, here's the thing, whether this is causation or correlation, the reality is, whether it's you coming to church gives you all those things, or that this is a keystone habit that regularly dominoes into those other areas, there's a benefit in the weekly gathered worship, that I'm not just here because I want you guys to hear me talk. And I'm like, I just spent so much time studying the Bible. Like, there is something to be said when we gather as a community, studying the scriptures on a weekly basis to sing, to pray, to greet one another, to come to the table. That is actually, it's a domino effect that leads to all of these other areas of benefit in our lives. And so here it is. If you're wanting to grow in self-control on the other side of 2020, the year, well, the year that shall not be named, if you're wanting to grow in willpower, if you're wanting to step into wisdom's way, both scripture and science would agree these keystone habits of prayer, Bible, and the weekly gathered worship, this is the place to start. And more than just to start, this is the, the gravitational center for that work. And so we're gonna look at others in the week to come. Uh, next week, we're gonna be detailing more of this about what it means for us as a church community in the year ahead. But like I said, we're gonna deal with, with wine, with uh, wealth. Lorenzo's doing one on work, and I think Pastor Isaac's doing one on words. And then we're gonna have a capstone week right before Thanksgiving that we kind of bring everything all together again. But this, this is what's before us. So many of you have been, I love the wisdom series, but I want, you know, the decision, the decision between wisdom and folly. And like, it's just like, it was like eight weeks of having that set before you. The repetition was intentional. The book knows what it's doing. But the whole point now is, okay, I want to live in wisdom. I've seen it set before me. I don't want a life of foolishness. I don't want to mislive. And what I, I think is the foundational set, that what we've seen by science and in the book of Proverbs here, is if you want to live that way, you need to give great attention to self-control, to your willpower and what that means is to the habits, the way that you're living. 
and to ask, not just how do I decide to be a wise person, but how do I recraft my habits in the direction of wisdom? And so as we begin to wrap up, where does self-control in wisdom's way then lead us? I began with saying that it leads us, you know, it's the way to greatness or it leads us away from vulnerability to folly. But what does this actually mean? Because here's the thing, for some of us, when we hear the language of self-control in our day and age, when self-expression and self-liberation is the moral good, the language of self-control can seem either repressive if aimed at yourself or oppressive if you're pushing it on someone else. Is, so, so, so there's a tension that we feel in the midst of living within a world that that it seems like the moral good is letting ourselves out. And throughout Proverbs, it's like, nah, man, you got stuff that needs to be restrained and buckled down. There's a, a tension here between the bad and the good. But the thing is, is even in the midst of that cultural moment right now that we have that is prone to view self-expression and self-liberation as good and self-control as bad, that's not entirely the case. We still hold out that self-control is good. We just have a limited framework for when and where. We love self-control if we're talking about food. We love self-control about if we're talking about our health, right? So much so that it's not just seen as a personal good, but as an objective cultural moral good. What The food that's on your plate, what you're eating right now, has implications not just for your own body, but for the whole entire world. The same is true with, with the clothing that we wear and how we show. So we 100% believe in self-control, but we've divided it into categories of areas of self-expression and self-liberation as being the good, and there being areas of self-control as being the good. Proverbs just simply wants to say, hey, maybe that, that self-control category needs to be a little bit bigger. So for some of you that feel the self-control tension, I would just say, you believe in self-control. Absolutely. You got out of bed today. Self-expression, at least for me, is I would not get out of bed. I would lay in bed and watch Seinfeld until I just, I faded away. <laughs> if I had, if I, everyone believes in self-control. The book of Proverbs is simply just saying, hey, maybe the categories are a little bit too small and more refined than you think. That maybe actually your money, maybe your wealth, maybe your relationship to substances and alcohol, to the words that you use and how you carry yourself and by gone at your sexuality, maybe there's room to have a conversation about self-control here. And so if some of you are wrestling through that, the invitation would be that I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying maybe the categories need to be a little bit bigger than we're holding right now. But also, even in the midst of that, when we agree with self-control, maybe if we are only locating that within our work, within our productivity, or within our, um, our food, or within our bodies and our exercise, the problem is, is that we tend to work self-control here in Proverbs into a framework with the greatness that's being offered as largely about power and success, of popularity and wealthy and healthy. Self-control is the avenue. You go out there into your life. You set your goals. You put them in your to-do list. You reshape your habits and you become the popular, the healthy, the wealthy person. And that is what greatness is held out to be. This is rooted in what David Brooks noted as we live in an age that's preoccupied with what he called resume virtues rather than eulogy virtues. We are focused on the resume virtues of success and achievement of the job, of the present, of who I am, the marathons that I've run and what I've done. And as good as those things are, we are preoccupied with those at the expense of eulogy virtues, the sort of things that people remember you for when you're dead. Honesty and faithfulness of wisdom and attention and presence. So Proverbs, is Proverbs simply offering a religious version of self-control as a way to, to greatness for you? whether resume or eulogy virtues. 
Now, some of us, our relationship to to self-control is even more complicated because we've been around the church for a little while and we love the idea that God saves us by grace, that through the work of Jesus, my salvation, that my my, um, um, acceptance by God, me standing before him as being right and good, that I can live out of that, that that comes as a grace gift from the work of Jesus and not the work that I do. Yes and amen. But there is an overcorrection within that that largely happens within American evangelicalism, which is where we then go, it's all grace. And what that means is I don't have to do anything. And so any call of self-control, of striving, of giving attention to your habits, it's like somebody called the wee legalism police because this dude's over here telling people that they have to work for it. Is Proverbs in its call to strive towards self-control and reshaping our habits, undermining the grace of God, the forgiveness that we have in Christ. To both of those, that being self-control as a means of our own greatness or self-control as a quick route to legalism and borderline heresy, to both, the early church leader and the apostle Paul would point to the second chapter of his letter to his fellow pastor, coworker, Titus. You'll see it behind me. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for every and anyone, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. As we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. True greatness and self-control as the pathway to it is not about you. Paul would say self-control is about surrendering your life to the ongoing salvation story, the redeeming work of Jesus for all people, every and anywhere, that your self-control is not about achieving something for yourself, of being the sort of person that, that you want to be. It's about being swept up into the greater story of King Jesus, our God and our Savior, and his sacrifice for us. That self-control then, true greatness, is the avenue not to resume or even eulogy virtues, as good as those are, but resurrection virtues. Self-control is how you become the sort of person who images the self-giving love of Jesus as we saw right here. Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us to redeem us from the law, that self-control is the avenue by which we control and restrain ourselves in order to more accurately image the self-giving love of Jesus. As Sir Alec Patterson put it, he was a Christian prison reformer about 100 years ago, as he prayed, oh God, help us to be masters of ourselves that we may be servants of others. Oh God, Help us to be masters of ourselves that we may be servants of others. And this is the fundamental thing missing in most conversations about self-control as as it's happening outside of the Christian context. Self-control is the avenue for your own personal growth and your career or your body or your work. And as good as those things are, Paul, Proverbs, Scripture, Jesus would say, the true purpose of self-control is you learning to restrain and control yourself so that you may love and give yourself for others. Because before you can give yourself, you have to be able to control yourself. Now, for those of us that get a little itchy about legalism, here what we find with Paul is that true grace does what? The grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people. That true grace has brought salvation for all people. And that grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and trains us to live self-controlled lives. True grace is about more than forgiveness. It's the power of God, the gift of God's spirit in you, training you to live like Jesus. And that comes not at the expense of you being zealous for good works, but through it. So there is no avenue of God's grace being at work in you that allows you to go, I'll see you in heaven. I'm just gonna kind of hang out and you know, hope I don't blow up too much stuff. True grace, when received in its fullness, is not just a get out of, get into heaven free card. It is the very power of God residing and working in us, shaping us to look like our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the gospel invites, well, how do I put this nicely? For, for too long, there are many of us within, within this own church community and, and within you know, American evangelicalism at large that we have used grace not just as a get into jail free card, but a get out of jail free card when it comes to good works and learning how to be a self-controlled and a growing mature person. As one author put it, some Christians have stalled out in their faith for simple lack of effort. That, you, that you've stalled out in your growth. And this is, I'm, I'm humbly setting this before you and I'm seeing this within myself at times. So this is, the, the shoe goes both ways right here. There are some of us that the reason why our faith and our growth in Jesus has, has, feels like it's stalled out is, is there are seasons where that does happen. And sometimes it's, it's surrounding circumstances. There's more going on. Sometimes it's that you're in a season where you've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old and you're trying to get into a new, like this is where we're, the season that we're in right now is it's like, man, I just feel like I'm just like, I'm, I'm on hoping, I'm just riding down the hill right now. The, in, the motor isn't going. There are seasons like that. But there are also seasons where it feels like our, the car of our faith and our growth has stalled out. And it's not because of external circumstances. It's just because of the fact that you've gotten comfortable and you're sitting on the grace chair. And, and the invitation of what Proverbs and the rest of this series is going to be is you seeing self-control, this virtue, not as being over and against God's grace, but the means through which he wants to work within you and through you. Because as Proverbs 3, 6, as we end, says, in all your ways, or habits, as we could translate it, acknowledge him and he will make, your straight, he will make straight your paths. In all of your ways, in all of your habits, in all of your life, as we acknowledge God, as we know him, we trust him, we look to him and we look to his son, we look to Jesus as our savior and king, that when we do that, as we draw near to him, he, draw nears to, uh, he draws near to us and this is the means by which he makes our path straight. Where he brings our lives back into order so we can walk, as Jesus put it, with love of God and love, as neighbor, love of neighbor as our second nature. And so with this all before us, we could more accurately rename self-control simply as self-surrender. Us learning the habits and the ways of life in which we're able to give our lives, our ways, our habits over to him, and not just only to him, but also to our neighbor. So let's pray.